Testing one, two, three. Good morning, family. Good morning, family. For those that don't know me, my name is Wayne Penn Jr. I'm pastoral resident here at Riverside Community Church. I'm elated to be here with you all. And uh, when I say family, I, I don't mean that in just the saying it, just be saying it kind of way. I do really consider everyone here family, those that are members of the body of Christ. Um, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and read our text coming from Luke, the first chapter, verses 67 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 80. I apologize in advance. I don't have any slides, so we're going to be a page turn to church this morning. <laughs> so y'all bear with me. If you have it, say, I got it. All right, all right. Y'all, there, there is a talk back church in this church. I'm convinced of it. So I'm, I'm going to do what I can to tease it out of y'all. Luke 1 Verses 67 through 80, it reads, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me for a moment of prayer? Father, I thank you once again for this opportunity to stand before your people. I, um, as always, am nervous and excited all at the same time, nervous in the sense that your weight is obviously a weighty thing to handle, and excited that I have the opportunity and the privilege to share in your word with my family. I pray, God, that you would anoint my words, that I would decrease as you increase, God, that whatever it is you desire to say, let it be said. Uh, move Wayne Penn Jr. out of the way, and Holy Spirit, you speak clearly with power with clarity and with conviction. And I pray, God, that you would prep our hearts and minds to receive your word. Let your word fall on good ground this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, our children's church is dismissed. Can we also give our worship team a hand? Really enjoy that. Amen. I have a question for everyone. Does silence ever make you uneasy? Does silence ever make you worried or anxious, uncertain, wondering what's going to happen next? 
Silence can have that effect on us, especially a silence that's prolonged and expected. It's awkward, right? There's plenty of scientists and other scholars who suggest that humans typically find prolonged silence actually distressing. For some of us, it's kind of a sign of danger. You know, you watch some movies and the protagonist walks into an area and like, it's, it's quiet. It's too quiet. Typically a sign of an ambush or something, right? Which is why, and you all know this, a lot of us find a sense of comfort in some kind of ambient noise. We don't like silence, so we're either listening to music on our phones, headphones in, some kind of silence. This is, or ambient noise rather, this is why I believe uh, my lovely wife, babe, I love you when I say this. This is why my lovely wife, for some reason, likes to have the TV on in order to fall asleep. Me, I'm not that dude, so I just kind of have to more or less wrestle through what she needs, you know, before I fall asleep. You look lovely, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I got to shore that up every time I pick on her. Um, silence can also be a powerful rhetorical device, though. Silence can be used to commemorate loss. You know, we often take moments of silence for those that we've lost or to commemorate and to honor someone. Silence can also enhance the sound of instruments in a song. It can create suspense, or it can pinpoint a key moment in a show or a film. Silence can actually speak volumes. It can either imply agreement, or it can signify the loudest protest. It's been said, you know, that silence actually has the power to neutralize power. In the right hand, silence can be the perfect setup for the message that someone intends to communicate. So let me ask you this. What happens when an all-powerful God uses a 400-year silence as a rhetorical device to set up the arrival of his answer to a powerless humanity? What happens when in the midst of the silence being broken, God then silences the father of the key messenger? What happens when this father, after nine months of silence, is finally able to break his own silence? I believe what you get out of that is actually our text. <laughs> so with the help of the Holy Spirit, I pray that I can unpack all of this for you. So our text, before we get to verses 67, I want to kind of backtrack to the previous 10 verses. Uh, verse 57 starts with uh, John the Baptist being born. Now, this, this event was marked by a lot of joy. As the angel Gabriel predicted, John's birth would be a joyous occasion. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 1 in Luke, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Then in verse 58, as, as it states, Elizabeth's neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they, were just, and they rejoiced with her. Now, we just sang about mercy. And mercy seems to be a recurring theme in this first chapter of Luke specifically. John's birth was also spoken of not just as a joyous occasion, but also as an act of mercy. But why? Why? I thought uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, you know, were stand-up people. Why did they need mercy? As pristine as Zechariah and Elizabeth looked, and they do look pristine, the first few verses of Luke 1 talk about how they were devout and righteous, blameless when it came to the law of the Lord. But as pristine as they looked, y'all, they were still sinners in need of a Savior. 
Barrenness was still regarded by many as a sign of disfavor. It was disgraceful. It was seen more or less as a curse. This is why Elizabeth acknowledges in the 25th verse of Luke 1, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're a good reminder to us that even the best of us are in desperate need of mercy. Desperate need. Mary brings this up in her song. I like to think of it more as a rap verse than a song. I'm the only one? Okay, all right. Uh, Luke 1 and 50, she brings it up. And his mercy is for those who fear him. We'll come back to that. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Then in verses 54 and 55, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Zechariah also brings up mercy in his rap verse, which we'll get to momentarily. Thank God for his mercy. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, come on, y'all gonna talk today. <laughs> Thank God for his mercy. I'm reminded of Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I'm also reminded of what Jeremiah said in Lamentations, one of my favorite verses, Lamentations 3 and 22. And I like it in the King James. <laughs> you know, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Thank God for his mercy. So the eighth day arrives, as was customary after a baby is born. The eighth day arrives, and it's time to circumcise the boy. Now, the relatives start clamoring about what the child's name will be. Some of us can relate to that. You know, whenever we don't have a name picked out right away, our relatives kind of, you know, insert their two cents. And it's, it's, it's all well and good. They're, they're well-intentioned, right? I mean, they, you know, it can be annoying sometimes. Let's just keep it real. But they, 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 they have the best intentions at heart. Now, they plan to name the baby after his dad. It's pretty customary. And apparently, Elizabeth had to put her foot down and said, no. And this wasn't like, you know, a quiet no that I would typically give. She, no. I imagine she had a little sister girl in her. Let's name the baby. No, 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 no. I said no. What y'all not going to do is name my baby after his non-believing daddy. No, I'm playing. Um, <laughs> Y'all stop playing. We in church. Uh, so the relatives, they react to this, and they're like, well, nobody in the family has that name, so Elizabeth, you're tripping. Why, why are you naming this baby a name that nobody in her family has? Why, why do that? So they ignore her <laughs> and then turn to Zechariah. And verse 62 says that they made signs to him, which has led many theologians to conclude that not only was he mute, but he may have been deaf. That's still debated, but it's pretty likely based on the fact that they had to make signs to him. 
And the Greek word for mute can actually mean both deaf and mute. So think about this for a moment. Not only is Zechariah had to endure not being able to talk for nine months, he's had to endure being able, not, not being able to hear. Nine months of absolute silence. You go from living your entire life speaking and hearing to losing both of those abilities for nine months straight. What was it like for those nine months for Zechariah to try and tend to his pregnant wife without being able to speak or hear? I imagine it got pretty heated at times. Babe, I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. And he's just sitting there like, I'm sure they worked it out, you know, being the pristine, righteous, devout people that they are. But it was, that's tough. Total silence. And it's interesting to me because I see a couple of parallels between Zachariah's silence and the 400-year silence that I mentioned before. Both of these acts of silence were more or less acts of discipline. God shut his mouth to Israel as a way to discipline them for their disobedience. God shut Zechariah's mouth because of his unbelief. I remember actually having to preach this when we were doing the Amos series, Amos 8 and 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. This was an act of discipline on God's part. Both were acts of God's discipline. Both also were rhetorical devices. They were a setup to heighten the impact of what was coming next. God knew what he was doing. And during both, during both of those periods of silence, God was still at work. Just because God shut his mouth doesn't mean his hands weren't active. There were prophecies coming to pass in that 400-year silence. And in Zechariah's case, a whole baby was being formed in the midst of that silence. God was still at work. On top of that, Mary is visited and told that she's going to bring about the Savior. God was still at work. Family, I just want to take a moment to encourage you. When God seems silent, he's still at work. When he seems silent, when it seems like nothing is happening, God is very much at work. Now, whether that silence is an act of discipline to maybe get your attention, and he does it lovingly, or whether that silence is just something that he allows, maybe it is a test of your faith. I heard an old saying from a preacher that said that as frustrating as it is for us to think of God being silent when we feel the most tested, it's important to keep in mind that the teacher is always silent during the test. The teacher is not supposed to speak while you're being tested. That defeats the purpose of the test. It's clear, too, that during the silence, God was at work in Zechariah's heart. Because when he's given the opportunity, as soon as he's given the opportunity, he wastes no time affirming the God-given name of the child. The relatives come to Zechariah and say, hey, man, your wife is tripping. Let, let, let us know that you're going to name this baby Zechariah. 
and they have to make signs. I don't know, I, I doubt they use sign language. And again, maybe they did, I don't know. Somehow or another, Zechariah got the message, asked for a tablet, and said, his name is John. And they're like, huh. He didn't hear that whole exchange that we had with Elizabeth a second ago. How was he coming to the same conclusion? And they wondered. They, they were amazed at this. They were like, okay, there, there must be something to this. They're blown away. Perhaps, like I said, because either they didn't like the name choice or they didn't understand and realize that this was something that Elizabeth and Zechariah were on the same page about already. And as soon as Zechariah affirms his son's name, which, by the way, means Yahweh is gracious. <laughs> I love that. Immediately his tongue is loosened, the text says. And what does he do? He has a praise party. He starts blessing God. I'm sorry, in the ESV it says he spoke blessing God. I'm sorry. <laughs> let, let me be proper. <laughs> fear, came, <laughs> fear came on all the neighbors. Fear. And it wasn't like, you know, a fear, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're afraid of what's happening. It was more kind of this reverent awe, like, oh, my goodness. We could verify. We were there when Zechariah was first silenced. We, we knew that this past nine months he could neither talk nor probably hear. And now when he's given this opportunity to speak, it is as soon as he affirms the name of this child that we didn't pick. They're amazed. It was abundantly clear to everyone that the hand of the Lord was with him. They said, what, what's the story with this kid? What, what kind of child is this going to turn out to be? What, what is going to happen? In light of all this miraculous stuff that's happened, what, what's the deal with this kid? And I can almost imagine Zechariah smiling, you know, thinking, yeah, that's my boy. Thinking back to what the angel Gabriel told him nine months ago about his son. You remember in Luke 1, 15 through 17, he said, For he will be great before the Lord, Gabriel told Zechariah, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is what Gabriel told Zechariah about his boy. And Zechariah after having his praise party, his moment, then gets what I like to think of as, you know, a heavy dose of the Holy Ghost in verse 67, and he starts to prophesy. Now, Zechariah's prophecy is actually a, a single run-on sentence in Greek. It's called the Benedictus. You know, we get our word benediction. The reason why it's named that is because the Latin word for blessing is benediction. So, it's called the Benedictus, the Benedictus based on the first word of Zechariah's prophecy. The first word is blessed. That's how he starts his prophecy. It also has a lot of parallels to Mary's song, her rap verse, right? I kind of like to think of it as, you know, this is Mary's, you know, dropping a single and Zechariah is the feature. Well, Y'all stop. So Zechariah <laughs> starts this off 
and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah is using past tense language to talk about this. He has visited, has redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation. It speaks to the now and the not yet dynamic of our faith. It's not yet here, right? But the time of his visitation is now. The time of salvation, the promised time of the Messiah has come. Despite the fact that Jesus hadn't even been born yet, Zechariah has enough faith to say, yeah, it's here. And the Holy Spirit is speaking through him to declare that. It is now yet not yet. The horn, horn is, you know, a symbol of strength. When we think of horns, we think of something that has the potential to do you harm. A bull's horn, for instance. So a horn of salvation refers to a mighty salvation, a strong savior. And he says, in the house of his servant David, he has raised up this horn for us. Uh, those of you that are tracking, Joseph, as has been mentioned, is from the line of David. So the Holy Spirit is, 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 is pouring out all of this prophetic language through Zechariah. And he goes on to say in verses 70 through 75, and I'm going to break those down as I go. Zechariah references the holy prophets of old. He says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, right? He shows continuity in this, that this was not some random occurrence, but rather that this was being voiced by God's spokespeople back in the day. This is not new, y'all. It's like he's saying, hey, hey, uh, just in case you think that my little prophecy here is, is just me saying this all by myself? No, this is what they were talking about way back then. It's not brand new news. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The Tyndale commentary that I used to help me with this message, thank you, James, for lending me that commentary. <laughs> it says the salvation of the, of the Messiah will bring the salvation that the Messiah will bring is spoken of first as deliverance in verse 71, and then as mercy to the fathers. In verse 72, he says, to show the promised mercy to our fathers. So it's talked of in terms of deliverance and then as mercy. And then it's spoken of in terms of the covenant, to remember his holy covenant in verse 72. And then more specifically, he pinpoints the covenant of Abraham the oath that he swore to our father Abraham in verse 73. This great deliverance also has an aim. So the salvation spoken of is for the purpose of deliverance. It's to show mercy to the fathers. It's to uphold the terms of the covenant, specifically the covenant that God gave to Abraham. Right? We're tracking? And it also has an aim. It's so that the people can serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness without fear. Now, if you've been looking at kind of what we've been talking about and dealing with in these verses, it's chock full of fear. And yet in some instances, fear is spoken of in a positive light. But here, we're supposed to serve him without fear. Well, I thought that we we're supposed to fear the Lord, right? I heard somewhere that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So are we supposed to be fearful or are we not supposed to be fearful? Yes. 
<laughs> I love doing that. Yes, not fear in the sense that we're terrified of God. I like to think of it this way. I know all analogies fall short. I think of the relationship that I have with my natural dad. I love him to life. I respect him a lot, but I'm not afraid of him. At least not now. I'm not afraid of him in the sense that whenever he comes around, I just kind of cower back like I don't want anything to do with him. But at the same time, I know that I don't need to talk to my dad any kind of way or I could still potentially catch his hands. Um, it's a healthy respect. Catch his hands means he could potentially hit me, by the way, for those that don't know. <laughs> just trying to make sure. I have a healthy reverence for my dad. I'm not afraid of him as a person. I'm a man myself, but at the same time, there's a respect there that dictates to me that, hey, I don't need to talk to my dad any kind of way, even at my age. That's the kind of fear and reverence that we should have for God. No, we need not fear being near to him. He compels us to draw near. He does not want us to serve him in fear, but he does want us to fear him to reverence him, to respect him. So he is our friend, yes. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But he's not, I, I, I understand what, you know, the, the whole Jesus is my homeboy shirts are getting at. I get it. He's not your homeboy. <laughs> yes, he's your friend, but he's, he's, he's not your homeboy. He's, he's not on that common level where you can't show reverence and respect. He draws us close, and he says, don't serve me with fear, but put some respect on his name. Zechariah, after having established all this through the power of the Holy Spirit, then turns to his child. I can imagine he picked up his child and held him up. And he says, you child, and he starts to break down John's unique place in redemptive history. He says in verse 76, you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John is the last really of the Old Testament prophets, despite the fact that he shows up in the New Testament. He's still the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he's different. He's different. The prophets of old foreshadowed Jesus in a lot of ways and a lot of what they said. Yeah, they, they pointed to the suffering servant. They pointed to the Messiah, but John directly preceded Jesus. John was the, the herald that came directly before his arrival. Verse 77 says that you're coming and you'll, you'll profess to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John will be the one who points to people directly to Jesus to be forgiven for their sins. Uh, a little, little, while, little ways later in Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, it talks about the nature of John's ministry. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist had one sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he, he didn't get all creative and, you know, illustrative and use all these different sermon hooks and all that kind of stuff. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. 
Why? Why, why preach this message? Because in verse 78, this, this, this salvation, this forgiveness of sins comes about because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of his tender mercy. I love that word tender. Tender. Because God's mercy is not reluctant. God's mercy is not half-hearted. It's not laced with shame or stipulations. Like our mercy is sometimes. It's tender. He's eager to show mercy. His mercy doesn't come with a catch. It's sincere. It's tender. It's gentle. This is the kind of mercy that should compel us to run to him with our sin and say, you know what, God, I repent. No need for me to walk in shame. You're eager to forgive me. And Jesus is coming in redemptive work. I love this language here. The latter part of verse 78 says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And then it bleeds into verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. His coming and his redemptive work are likened to a sunrise breaking into the darkness, giving light to those who sit in the shadow of death. I love that. Reminds me of Malachi 4 and 2. It's interesting that the sunrise language is used in the beginning of the end of this 400-year silence. And it parallels what Malachi said right before the silence happened. Malachi 4 and 2 says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness, S-U-N, shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. It's the sunrise. It's the breaking of the darkness. Jesus' coming was to be like the sun, the light, breaking into the darkness, giving us permission to serve him, to repent, and to come before him without fear, and to feel a sense of freedom like little baby calves being free from a stall. Listen, to those who are here or watching, perhaps, who have not repented yet, who have not confessed to sin, who have not acknowledged Jesus as their Lord and personal Savior, Malachi points out very plainly in Malachi 4 and 1 that this same sun, S-U-N, also the S-O-N, this same sunrise will have a different effect on you. And I say this in love. Malachi 4 and 1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. If you've not acknowledged the Lord as your Savior, that, that sunrise will have a different effect on you. But the good news is, as it says in verse 2 of Malachi 4, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The sunrise will either bring you joy or it'll burn. But the good news is Jesus came so that that sun, that, that light emanating from him would bring healing. He doesn't want to bring burning. He wants to bring healing. 
Now, as for us who have already acknowledged Jesus as Lord, let's keep basking in the sunshine. Let's enjoy the sunshine. I know it's getting colder, (laughs) but let's bask in the sunshine. Come on, this Christmas season, sunbathe. Not literally, but you get the picture. Because, Because this silence, and I'm coming to a close, because the silence has been broken through Jesus, we, like Zechariah, don't have to be silent. Because the silence has been broken through Jesus Christ, we as believers, we as his followers, no longer have to be silent. That same spirit that rose up in Zechariah, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is living in each of us who belong to Christ. And in the words of that old Christmas hymn, go, (laughs) tell it on the mountain, over the hills everywhere, go, tell it on the mountain, that Jesus Christ is Lord. The silence has been broken. God has spoken. And let the church say, amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you once again. Your word, God, your will is what's best for us. I'm grateful, God, that you seek to heal, that you seek to restore, that you seek to redeem. For those that don't know you, God, may they feel drawn, and may they feel compelled by your word, by the good news of your gospel, and may they come to know you. For those of us, God, that are already believers, may we be encouraged to press on, and may we, uh, with, with new joy and anticipation, celebrate this Advent season, knowing, God, that you have come and that you are coming. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.